OSIRIS-REx delivers its asteroid samples back to Earth. India is losing hope in contacting its lunar mission, and Webb is finally seeing baby galaxies coming together in the early universe. All this and more in this week's Space Bites. Well, after seven years of flight in space, visiting asteroid Bennu, collecting a sample, flying away, returning to Earth, OSIRIS-REx released its capsule back to Earth, which landed safely in the Utah desert on Sunday. So NASA was on hand to retrieve the capsule as it landed safely at the Utah Test and Training Ground. And then they hooked it with a helicopter, transferred it to an airplane, and flew it back to the Johnson Space Center at Houston. And there, NASA had prepared a special facility just for these samples. They opened up the capsule, moved the actual collection box into a special, what they call a glove box. And like, it's not like the glove box in your car, but it is like a box that is pressurized and has gloves that scientists can use. They can put their hands in, they can work with the samples, but there's no chance of contamination from inside or outside. We don't know how much material was actually gathered by OSIRIS-REx from asteroid Bennu, but as NASA was opening up the box, people said they saw like a black sooty material inside. So you've got to assume that is from the asteroid and then there could be anywhere from a few hundred grams maybe to a kilogram of material inside this sample collection. The next step is they're going to take this from this facility to various laboratories where they're going to test it and sort of make sure that they've got what they were thinking they would have. And then we will start to see more and more scientific investigation of the samples that were retrieved by OSIRIS-REx. Now, this isn't the end of the mission for the OSIRIS-REx spacecraft itself. It did a flyby of Earth, it deposited its capsule, and now it is moving on. Its next objective is to reach asteroid Apophis by 2029. And this is an asteroid that was sort of one of the most seriously considered potentially hazardous asteroids. And so this asteroid was expected to come uncomfortably close to Earth in 2029, and that it was thought that maybe that would then change its orbit so that it might collide further down the road. That has been ruled out, but still, as one of the asteroids that is going to come extremely close to Earth, having OSIRIS-REx orbiting the asteroid when this happens to see what kinds of changes happen to the asteroid as it makes its closest approach, you know, comes within the orbit of the Earth and the Moon. It's going to have tidal effects on this asteroid, and OSIRIS-REx will be right there to watch how this happens. So. Even though we've already got the samples coming back, there's still a lot of exciting science to be done, and I'm really glad they were able to extend this mission. I actually watched the rocket take off for OSIRIS-REx. So I'm gonna talk about my experiences of watching a rocket launch and, and like how you can do the same at the end of this video. So stick around for that. James Webb sees baby galaxies. Well, this is the whole point of James Webb, right? That this enormous telescope was designed to be able to look back into the early universe and help astronomers see how the large mature spiral galaxies came together. Would it see small dwarf galaxies coming together as building blocks and eventually building up the larger galaxies? Or would it see sort of large galaxies just forming in place from all of this gas and dust? And that work is still ongoing. But one of the other questions was, would it see galaxies that were largely pristine without a lot of heavier metals than the more polluted galaxies that we see around us today. 
And so a new paper, astronomers said that they've been able to observe a fairly large number of these galaxies that you know, we've been talking about these galaxies week after week after week now for like the better part of a year. But now the data is coming in that's so good, they're able to get spectroscopy of these galaxies and be able to figure out what kinds of chemicals are in these galaxies. And so when you look at galaxies around us today, Andromeda stuff in our local area, you see galaxies that have a lot of heavier elements in them. You've had multiple generations of stars live, die, detonate, throw their material into gas clouds, those form into new stars, they die, and you just get this increasing pollution of heavier elements in the stars in the more modern galaxies. But the expectation is that when you look back to the early universe, you would see ones that don't have those heavier elements. They would mostly be the hydrogen and the helium left over from the beginning of the universe. And this is what astronomers are seeing. So in these more recent surveys, they were able to see a large collection of galaxies and see that they actually lack the heavier elements that we see in more modern galaxies. And so they're young, they're baby galaxies. And so take a look at this image. So this shows you a comparison. Along the top, you're seeing the kinds of metallicity of the galaxies that we see in the more modern universe. But then sort of along the middle, you're seeing an expectation of what the early universe should look like. And then these red galaxies that you see in the image, these are the actual objects that have been imaged and understand their chemicals so far, and they pretty nicely fit the expectations. And so I think, you know, for a lot of people are saying, oh, James Webb has disproven the Big Bang, like, no, it didn't. And this is sort of a perfect example of the kind of observations that are getting made that are showing how the early universe looks compared to what our expectations were. Right now, this is just 16 galaxies. Next year, this could be dozens, eventually, there will be hundreds, thousands of galaxies that have been put into this data plot and we get a much better understanding. And so it's probably going to shift higher or lower, and it's going to change what astronomers are thinking of. But there's like, you know, you're not seeing all old galaxies, you're seeing young galaxies as expected. Yeah, this, this feels to me like this is just the nail in the coffin. Like this, this paper is devastating to, you know, James Webb overturned the Big Bang. No signal from Chandrayaan-3. We were all excited to report on India's Chandrayaan-3 mission landing safely on the moon, the Vikram lander and the Pragyam rover. And the clock was ticking because they only had about two weeks, 14 days to explore the moon as quickly as they could, because they were only able to do this during the lunar day. And then as soon as night fell, temperatures were going to drop down. And this was believed to kill both the lander and the rover. At the south pole of the moon, temperatures are expected to drop to minus 250 degrees Celsius. That's cold. And unless you've got some kind of power source that is heating your spacecraft through this cold night, 14 days of night, there's not much you can do. The battery's going to die, the electronics are going to fail, and it's not going to wake up. But India's space agency was hoping against all hope. And so they kept attempting to communicate with the rover and the lander. And they were programmed if they did survive the night to wake up, reestablish contact with Earth and then continue on and maybe do another session of exploring the moon. India let us know that they haven't received a signal so far, even though we're well into the next lunar day, almost at the next lunar night. And so at this point, I think all hope is lost to recover these spacecraft. Looking into the darkest parts of the moon. 
Now, Chandrayaan-3 mission went to the moon's south pole. And this is, of course, a very exciting place to observe on the moon because this is where there are large deposits of frozen water ice in the poles and the permanently shadowed craters on the moon. And we talk about this all the time, right? That, that astronauts could go to this part of the moon dig into this ice, use it for breathing, for propellant, for all kinds of things. As long as you have water, you can get a lot done. But we have orbital data that this water exists, but not a lot of information about how much there is, where it is, and sort of what is the environment inside the dark craters of the moon. NASA's Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter is at the moon right now, but it was designed to look in a more balanced lighting environment. So it can see places that are in full illumination, maybe some reflected light, but it really can't see into the permanently shadowed craters on the moon. And to fix this problem, NASA put an instrument on board a South Korean spacecraft called Danuri. And so NASA's instrument is called ShadowCam. And unlike the camera system on board the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter, ShadowCam is designed to see an incredibly low light. Like it can't look at the bright parts of the moon, but in those permanently shadowed craters, it can resolve features that are incredibly dim. So this picture that you're looking at, this is Shackleton Crater, which is one of these permanently shadowed craters on the moon. And you can see all of the features inside this crater. And then you can see sort of this brighter rim of the crater, and then the outside of the crater is well lit. And so this is a mosaic. The outer parts of this image were taken by the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter, and then the parts inside the crater were done with ShadowCam, which is part of the Denuri spacecraft. And so you can imagine over time, NASA is going to get like really good images of all of these permanently shadowed craters at the South Pole of the Moon. And then this can serve for future exploration ideas. China is looking at a lava tube moon base. Speaking of exploring the moon, we've talked about how hostile the lunar environment is. You've got incredible temperature changes going from day to night. And then you've got the constant radiation that is coming from space that is hundreds of times more dangerous than what you would experience here on the surface of the Earth. You've got the vacuum, airlessness, like it just goes on. The moon is not a place that human body was meant to be. But human beings have been using caves for millennia as a place to hide out from the weather. And so it makes sense to look for caves on the moon, the idea of lava tubes, there were times in the past when the moon had a lot of volcanism on it, and you had lava flows. And so you would get this crust form on the top of, a, of an underground lava flow, and then the lava would completely flow out, and you'd be left with this tube. On Earth, these things can be tens of meters high, but on the low lunar gravity, these things can be hundreds of meters high, kilometers high, like these things can be really big. You could put a lunar city inside one of these lava tubes with room to spare. And so at a recent science conference, Chinese space officials said that they are seriously investigating how they would plan to explore lava tubes on the moon and maybe set up some kind of permanent moon base in one of these things. And there's sort of two kinds of ways you would want to approach a lava tube. One is these skylights where the top of the lava tube has sort of worn away and you get this hole that goes down into the lava tube. But the other kind, the kind that's probably more useful is one where you've got a sloped entrance. Maybe this was the place where the lava was starting to flow out onto the surroundings. And so you could actually go into this, like drive a rover into the end of the lava tube. Right now, they're investigating lava tubes in the Sea of Tranquility and the Sea of Fecundity. And the next step is that they're going to 
consider sending a robotic mission to explore one of these lava tubes. And then if that all goes according to plan, then maybe those will be a potential location for a future lunar base protected by the radiation, better temperature control, you could seal off part of it and make it airtight. And you could have a place that you could be protected from the harsh lunar environment while you're exploring the moon. Every week, we put up a list of all the stories that we worked on in this week's Space Bite and give you a chance to vote on the story that you thought was the best. And of course, last week, the story that was the top was the fact that James Webb had found carbon dioxide on the surface of Europa. It was by a landslide. This voting shows up in our community tab on YouTube. And so if you want the best chance to be able to see this vote and participate, make sure you're subscribed. And then when we put up the next vote, you'll see it and let us know what you think. And then we'll report back each week on what was the top story. M87 is spinning. That first image that we got of a supermassive black hole's event horizon, you know, the one that was taken by this worldwide collection of radio telescopes, the event horizon telescope, this supermassive black hole was at the heart of galaxy M87. The galaxy is 55 million light years away. And this supermassive black hole is 6.5 billion times the mass of the sun. So compare that to the one that's at the heart of the Milky Way. It's merely 4 million times the mass of the sun. So it's a significantly more massive black hole. But one of the questions that astronomers had was, is this thing spinning? So even though M87 does have an accretion disk, you don't know if the accretion disk means that the black hole is rotating. And the problem was that the accretion disk didn't seem to line up with the rotation axis of the black hole itself. And so astronomers needed some other way to figure out whether or not the black hole is rotating. So a team of researchers used radio telescopes to look at the environment around M87 and they saw the leftover remains of its polar jets that are coming out from the north and south pole of the black hole. And they could see how these jets had been wandering over long periods of time. And they were able to measure sort of the drift of these jets. And so you don't get that drift unless you've got the black hole actually rotating. And so they're able to confirm that yes, indeed, the black hole is rotating based on the fact that the polar jets are wandering. So this is still one of the big tricky issues. I mean, in fact, it was really hard for astronomers to figure out even the orientation of the supermassive black hole at the heart of the Milky Way and whether or not it's spinning. So just because you could observe the black hole and even its accretion disk still doesn't tell you about its orientation, doesn't tell you about how fast its spin rate is. These are tricky problems to figure out. Searching for anomalies in large surveys. I'm really fascinated by survey telescopes, this idea of instead of like taking telescope time and looking at one object and then sort of writing down what you saw, instead, build a telescope that can look at all the objects at the same time. And then instead, you can search through the archive data for whatever questions that you want to answer. And so one really interesting survey is called DESI, the Dark Energy Camera Legacy Survey. And they are trying to characterize dark energy in the universe. But by doing this, they are having to look at millions and millions of galaxies. And of course, to look through millions of galaxies in an efficient manner, you need some kind of machine learning algorithm. It's tough to have human beings look through that much data. So astronomers came up with an algorithm called Astronomaly. And what they did was they taught it what different kinds of normal looking galaxies look for, and then asked it to find anything that was weird. And so it looked through about 4 million galaxies, and it was able to find about 1635 anomalies. Now most of these are 
gravitational lenses or new like weird galaxies that are going through some kind of tidal interaction, but it was also able to find 18 with highly unusual morphology. So in other words, they've never seen galaxies like this. And so when you think about it, you're taking this entire data set of millions and millions of galaxies, and then you're just boiling it down to 18 things that are weird that are deserving further study. And this is just like a sample of what's coming. When you think about what's coming with the Nancy Grace Roman, what's coming with Euclid, and of course, time for that uh, always ever-present Vera Rubin comment, Vera Rubin is going to be imaging 20 billion galaxies throughout its lifetime. It's going to be dumping out 20 terabytes of data every single night. And so they're going to be taking these machine learning algorithms and then feeding all of this data into it. And then it's just going to be finding anomaly after anomaly. And each one of these could be a PhD study for a scientist. Um, and there's so much out there in the universe that we don't know because we just were looking at all of the things all of the time. And now with Vera Rubin, we will be. If you enjoy our interviews, good news. We've got so many of them coming up. I think this week I've interviewed somebody every single day and I've got about another dozen in my calendar right now. And I still see a lot of stories. So clearly like I just needed people to come back from the summer vacations and now they're all saying yes to me. So there's a lot of really exciting interviews coming your way. And if you're a patron, you get advanced access to the interviews. And so we'll release those to the patrons first, and then everybody else gets them a day or two after we release them to the patrons. So if you want that early access, go to patreon.com slash universe today. It's official. Arecibo is gone. All right, I'm going to show you like the saddest picture. This is the Arecibo Observatory in Puerto Rico. It collapsed in 2020, and it's just a tangled mess of metal right now. And one of the hopes with the astronomical community was that it would be rebuilt, that either it would come back to its original form and be this 300 meter plus radio telescope with a radar system that allowed it to scan passing asteroids, or there was other possibilities, maybe less expensive, maybe it would be an array of 102 13 meter telescopes kind of packed into the area with modern technology that would give even more sensitivity than the original Arecibo Observatory. But the National Science Foundation gave its final declaration on the matter. And the answer is no, Arecibo will not be rebuilt. Instead, they're going to spend $5 million over the next five years, they're going to build like a science center where they will educate on local biology as well as computers and other educational resources for people. And obviously, you'd be able to come and sort of see the facility as it stands today. But we're not going to have a world class radio telescope at Arecibo ever again. The last mirror for the Giant Magellan Telescope is getting cast. All right, this is a very cool picture. This is the final mirror of the giant Magellan telescope that's in the process of being casting. And so this is a facility that is in Arizona, and they cast a lot of the big mirrors that are around the world. This is very standard size, 8.4 meters. And what they do is they have this giant mold, and then they fill it with optical grade glass. And then they heat it to over 1000 degrees Celsius. And this melts the glass in this sort of giant oven. And then they rotate the whole oven. And the rotational force of this forms the glass, the molten glass, into the right shape for a mirror. 
and then they slowly let it cool down and it hardens into that shape. And now you've got a perfect mirror. And then they come through and they clean it up and they polish it and they get it to the level that's required for the largest observatories in the world. And the Giant Magellan Telescope will eventually be 25 meters. It's going to have seven of these mirrors. And they started casting these in 2005. And now they're just beginning the process for the final mirror of the set. And then once it's complete, it will be shipped down to the facility in Chile and attached to the observatory. The plan is to have the observatory open in 2029. And they're probably going to start with four of their mirrors operational and eventually they'll bring all seven of them online. And then we'll have the largest telescope in the world. If it wasn't for the extremely large telescope, which will be even bigger, but still we're having this whole new class of giant observatories come online. Now I'm going to talk about my experience in watching the Cyrus Rex mission launch and how you can watch rockets launch too. But first I'd like to thank our patrons. Special thanks to Mark Anstis, Joel Yancey, Antonio Lofilara, Dustin Cable, Just Paul Davis, Vlad Shiplin, Jay Dennis, David Giltonad, Modso, George, Jeremy Mattern, Jordan Young, Tim Whalen, Dave Verboff, Andrew Gross, and Josh Schultz, who support us at the Master of the Universe level, and all of our other supporters on Patreon. So when you first come onto my channel, there's a video that plays if you're not subscribed. And it's our experience in going and watching the OSIRIS-REx mission launch from the Kennedy Space Center seven years ago, we had to catch a ferry, we had to fly out of Vancouver to Cape Canaveral. And then we had to go out to the facility and tour everything and get a chance to see the rocket on the pad. And then at the appointed time, we got a chance to watch the rocket launch. And I talk about my experiences of watching the rocket launch sort of uh, a friend Sawyer Rosenstein is telling me sort of like what it's going to be like and then we actually experience and watch it and like if you've never watched a rocket launch it is an amazing experience I mean you see it obviously and you know in your mind you know that this rocket is taking off and it's heading to do this mission and you sort of think about this era of space flight that we live in. But there's also this sort of physical visceral experience that you get as the rocket takes off. It's very loud, but it's very far away. And you get these pressure waves that are moving across. You can actually see them move across the water towards you. And when they hit, you feel it across your whole body, like in your chest and you know, you you feel the rocket take off. It was an incredible experience to actually watch a rocket launch. And I'd love to see another one again. Like I tried to watch the second to the last launch of the space shuttle, but it got delayed. And so I went down, but I wasn't able to see it. So this is it. My one and only rocket launch that I've seen so far. I know the people who live in Florida. I've seen these things all the time, but still. But, you know, people talk to me and they say like, oh, one of my dreams, I'd love to watch a rocket launch. Well, that is a very achievable dream. Like if you live in the United States, or Canada, or even Europe, um, that you can go to the east coast of the US, go to Cape Canaveral, there's a bunch of towns really close by. Um, Cocoa Beach is has a beautiful view out to the Cape where you can see all the rockets on the pads. And at the appointed time when a rocket's going to take off, you can just like sit on the deck or go down to the beach and you can watch the rocket take off and you'll feel the same kinds of things that I did. And it's a fun holiday. So if like watching a rocket take off is on your bucket list of experiences that you want to have, look into booking a flight to Florida, go to Cape Canaveral, stay in Cocoa Beach and watch a rocket take off. And then also see all the other cool stuff around that area and sort of really experience that history of space flight in at Cape Canaveral. Um, it's, it's, you can do it. It's not that hard. All right. 
We'll see you next week.